On this episode of the Blue Jacketeer podcast, we'll be covering chapter 20 of the Corman Manual. Welcome to the Blue Jacketeer podcast, where we help you prepare for the Navy-wide advancement exam by covering study material created by highly qualified sailors. Learn more about what we have to offer at www.bluejacketeer.com. Welcome back to the bluejacketeer.com podcast for hospital corpsmen. I'm Taylor Larson, and I'll be walking you through this chapter of the Corman Manual. Here at Blue Jacketeer, we aim to bring you the tools you need to be successful on the Navy-wide advancement exam. On this episode, we'll continue with the Hospital Corman Manual covering Chapter 20. Be sure to pay attention because on the next episode, you'll be quizzed on what you learned today. Without further delay, let's get started. Sit back, relax, and listen up. This is Chapter 20 of the Hospital Corman Manual, Emergency Rescue, Supplies, Equipment, and Procedures. This chapter will come in handy for any corpsman that will be going to an operational billet. We're going to cover the fundamentals and some techniques of emergency medicine, so let's jump right in. The first part of what we'll talk about will be a corpsman's equipment and supplies. If you've been assigned to a Marine Corps unit, you're likely familiar with either the Unit 1 bag or the Mole bag. Mole stands for Modular Lightweight Load Carrying Equipment and has been phasing out the older Unit 1 bag. It should go without saying that it's crucial to become intimately familiar with the inventory in your bag, as that alone can make the difference when trying to save a life. A large amount of the items you'll carry in your mole bag will be variants of dressings. A dressing is a sterile pad or compress that you'd use to cover a wound to control bleeding and protect it from infection. That infection bit is important. A dressing should be large enough to cover the wound completely and extend at least an inch in every direction from the wound's edges. There are a few tips to remember when you're wrapping a wound. First, bandages should be applied evenly and firmly without compromising circulation. Second is to remember that bandages aren't tourniquets. We're not trying to limit circulation with these, only control bleeding and protect it. Third is that if you're bandaging an extremity, you should leave the fingers or toes exposed so that you can check the circulation of the most distal portion of the wounded area. Now on to the roller bandage. This is an extremely versatile bandage that can help secure a dressing to almost any part of the body. The test has hit on this before, and it can again, so let's specifically touch on how to apply a roller bandage to the elbow. The style of roll that we're looking to apply to this area is a spica, or figure eight type of bandage. This will allow a bit of movement while securing the compress dressing to the wound. If you can flex the elbow a bit without hurting the patient or worsening an injury, that's the position it should be bandaged in. You'll anchor the two or three inch bandage above the elbow and wrap the forearm below the elbow with a circular turn. You'll continue with a cycle of bringing the bandage up, wrapping above the elbow and back down, and wrapping below the forearm in a figure eight pattern. A diagram on page 20, tack four will show you how if you're a visual learner. The last step after applying any bandage is to check the pulse or circulation. You can essentially do the same thing for the hand and wrist, or ankle and foot. Simply anchor the bandage with a few turns either at the wrist or at the instep of the foot, up around the hand or above the ankle, back down to the anchoring point, and continuing in a figure eight pattern as necessary to secure the compress. 
There's quite a bit of additional bandages and wrapping techniques that the book covers, but we're going to fast forward a little bit to get to the questions the test commonly asks. The third class and second class exams sometimes ask about tourniquets. So the one referenced in the manual and the one you'll see throughout the majority of your career is the combat application tourniquet. It's a small, lightweight, one-handed tourniquet that will completely close the artery in an extremity. Another first aid tool that you'll see often on the operational side is the Asherman Chest Seal, or ACS. This is a sterile occlusive dressing for treating an open pneumothorax and preventing a tension pneumothorax from penetrating chest trauma. It has a one-way valve that allows blood and air to leave the injury while preventing the entry of both. The chapter continues with intravenous fluids and infusion equipment, but these are pretty easy since you all should be familiar with some fundamentals of phlebotomy, so I'll make this section quick. Normal saline is of course first. It's the broad term for a solution with 0.91% sodium chloride. Used most commonly with patients that could develop dehydration or hypovolemia. Lactated ringer solution is used to increase body fluid after a large amount of blood loss from a trauma or surgery. Heta starch is our last fluid and it's a synthetic plasma expander, which is a fancy way to say that it makes the plasma blood volume expand to prevent shock after a lot of blood loss from trauma, surgery, or some other problem. For infusion equipment, I hope you don't mind if I don't explain intravenous infusion sets. Every corpsman gets experience with this in core school, so let's move on to intraosseous devices. When you're trying to keep a patient from going into shock and you can't get a good standard IV started, an intraosseous device works as the step between an IV and a central venous cannulation. Still difficult, still painful, but less so than the central line typically faster as well. The FAST-1 is the most common of this sort. Next subject we have is breathing aids. As far as oxygen tanks go, emergency situations will warrant either a D or E size cylinder. If you've seen one of the much larger tanks either at a hospital or on a ship, don't be confused, those are H size cylinders. D and E are smaller transportable variants. All oxygen cylinders in the U.S. are color-coded green, silver, or chrome, with a green area around the valve stem. Internationally, O2 tanks are colored white. Maintaining the correct PSI in a tank is crucial. What good is it in an emergency if it's empty? Make sure that when the cylinder regulator pressure gauge reaches 200 PSI or lower, the tank's label is changed to empty, and it's replaced and put into storage. A bag valve mask ventilator is used to help ventilate an unconscious casualty for long periods with high levels of oxygen. It's really so effective that it's pretty much the poster child for resuscitation with CPR attempts. When the BVM is hooked up to an O2 tank, it can provide 50% oxygen at 5 liters per minute and 90% oxygen at 15 liters per minute. The BVM should be compressed once every 5 seconds with one hand, while the other holds it firmly on the patient's face with a thumb and index finger, and the remaining fingers holding the chin up and forward. 
The pocket face mask is another option for situations where you need to provide emergency ventilation to a patient that's in danger of hypoxia. The face mask can give up to 4 liters of air per breath. Speaking of hypoxia, some of the dangerous signs that you should be looking for are tachycardia, nervousness, irritability, and cyanosis. An OPA, or oropharyngeal airway, is another tool that a corpsman should always have for emergency situations. This is strictly for unconscious patients. OPAs come in various sizes and need to be measured for each patient to make sure that it'll be effective. Hold the OPA along the side of the patient's face and pick the size that extends from the corner of the mouth to the tip of the earlobe. An NPA or nasopharyngeal airway isn't much different, but it can be used on a conscious patient since it typically doesn't aggravate the gag reflex. The next section covers some protective equipment, but not a lot of that is on the test. I'll just mention that an SCBA oxygen canister varies between 20 to 40 minutes, that gas masks don't protect from industrial gases like carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide, and that standard naval lifelines are a steel wire cable and measure 50 feet long. I know all that seemed random, but I just cut out about a page of unnecessary fluff. Next, we have some procedures for removing people from fires, electrical shocks, drowning, and even how to treat radioactively contaminated personnel. All fun stuff. So I've seen rescue and extrication stages on the test myself, from third to first class, so I know that the writers consider these important beyond their obvious applications. The four phases of rescue are as follows. Phase 1, remove lightly pinned casualties. Phase 2 is the rescue of those that are slightly more difficult to remove, but can be rescued using the equipment you already have and take a minimal amount of time. Next, the third phase removes patients that are extremely difficult and time-consuming to remove. The fourth phase consists of removing the dead bodies. Extrication has five phases, with phase one being simply getting access to the patient. Phase two is where you'll give what life-saving emergency care that you can while they're still partially trapped. Stage three is disentanglement, when you'll remove anything trapping the casualty or anything that could hurt the patient or the rescuer. Always want to avoid adding a patient to the situation, right? Phase four is preparing the casualty for removal. Think of adding a C-collar, splinting possible fractures, that sort of thing. Fifth stage is finally removing the casualty and taking them to an ambulance or a sick bay on a ship. Now, on to treating a casualty that is on fire. It's important to think this process through before you're in this situation, because if you're not mentally prepared, further harm that could have been prevented can occur to both the patient and the rescuer. First thought should be to smother the flames with a blanket, coat, towel, never leave home without one, making sure to leave the head uncovered. If you don't have something to smother the flames with, roll the casualty slowly and use your own hands to put out the flames, starting at the head and working down. Now, this is the bit where thinking through this situation comes into play. Your patient in this scenario is someone that is on fire. 
When you think of someone being on fire, I doubt that they are fully calm, complacent, and cooperative. This person is going to try to be on the move, and we need them to lay down to smother the flames. So, if they try to get up and run, force them to the ground, knock them out, tackle them, whatever you have to do. Having them lay down will also reduce the chance of them inhaling flames, smoke, or even the hot air that can be really harmful to the lungs. And now on to electrical rescue, or rescuing someone from being electrocuted, you know what I mean. First step is to ideally secure the power. Whether this means that you yourself hit the switch that is never conveniently right next to you, or you shout for someone else to turn it off, try to get it done. If you're by yourself and can't find the switch, don't waste time looking for it. Instead, use something non-conductive to remove the wire from the patient or the patient from the conduit. Brooms, branches, poles, an oar, whatever you can get your hands on. The wire can also be cut with a wooden-handled axe. Wooden being the key word there. Rescuing a drowning casualty is something that is best left to the professionals. Seriously. If you're not trained in waterborne life-saving methods, don't even try to swim to rescue them unless there is no better way of reaching them. Best thing is to give the casualty something to grab. A life ring, pole, oar, stick, or something buoyant that will actually support them in the water. The treatment of radioactive patients is really no more difficult than any other class of patient, so I'll just stress one point for this segment. Treating a patient with a life-threatening injury takes precedence over any decontamination or containment procedures. Much to the dismay of your DCA, those protocols need to be breached in order to access and treat the patient. No healthcare worker in the United States has ever suffered secondary radiation injuries after giving emergency care to a contaminated patient. So you can rest easy and focus on treating the patient. We've already covered quite a bit, but now we're going to move on to the patient movement portion of the rescue. There are a lot of tools available to move a patient, but some have better applications in certain situations than others. Common sense aside, it's important to remember to always move a patient feet first when in a stretcher. This keeps their heads from getting accidentally smacked on a bulkhead and lets the rear stretcher bearer monitor the patient's breathing. The Navy's most common service litter is the Stokes stretcher. This stretcher is just, really it's just a bunch of iron rods with some chicken wire. Not a whole lot to talk about there. Another tool though is the Kendrick extrication device or KED. This one's use is to provide support to help immobilize casualties with suspected minor neck and or back injuries. The Miller, or full body, board has an outer plastic shell filled with polyurethane foam. All that to say that this thing is sturdy, and because it also immobilizes the entire body, it's best used for a confined space rescue or a vertical extraction. The Miller board also conveniently fits inside a stoke stretcher. A reeve sleeve is mainly designed to quickly immobilize and transport a patient with suspected spinal or neck injuries. Spine boards are a crucial part of the let's move the patient now puzzle. Spine boards are integrated into most of the stretchers that we've talked about, including the reef sleeves and the KED, 
but they can be taken out and used separately should the need arise. Spine boards are the portion that does the actual immobilizing of any known or possible fractures in those stretchers because they're made of fiberglass or exterior plywood. A short spine board like the one found in a KED would be used for a sitting casualty, and the long spine boards are used to make a firm stretcher, also providing a good surface for CPR. There are also some fancy ways to get patients out of tricky spaces using Fibraline as well as some one and two rescuer carrying techniques, but they're all pretty intricate and difficult to describe over a podcast, so I'm going to pass over this bit. If you're really interested, they can be found on page 20, tech 30 through 33. Next, we'll talk about a battlefield situation where you need to treat the patient and get them to a treatment facility. Care under fire refers to the care you give to the patient when there is a direct and ongoing threat to the patient and yourself, the corpsman. This type of aid needs to be quick and only used on an immediate life threat. We're pretty much slapping a tourniquet on this one and moving the patient. Tactical field care is when the threat is reduced, but the general environment is still unstable. Tactical evacuation care consists of the treatment given to the patient during movement to the treatment facility. A medevac request or a nine line is required to get the necessary transport and equipment to the patient in the field. This is an intricate and detailed form, and if I were to rattle off all of the requirements for each of the nine lines, none of you would remember it. The full form, requirements, and more can be found on page 20, TAC 37 through 38. I highly recommend you take a look at the chart, specifically the item column next to each line. Again, it starts on page 20, TAC 37 in your manual. The last section that I'll discuss is hazmat site control zones. There are three of these. First is the exclusion or hot zone, which is the direct area where the contamination happened. The outer boundary of this area needs to be marked by signs, lines, hazard tape, just something to warn people not to go there. The next is the contamination reduction zone or warm zone. This is just the transition between the hot zone and the clean area in order to keep it clean. The support zone is the last zone, and it's where all of the administrative and any other support functions for the cleanup are kept. So this concludes our lesson for chapter 20 of the Hospital Corman Manual. I hope that you were not only able to learn something, but also apply some of the information in this chapter to your daily duties. Remember, at Blue Jacketeer, we bring you the very best in advancement exam preparation. Don't forget to listen to the audio quiz for this lesson and get your best studying done with our expert study tools at www.bluejacketeer.com. Also, make sure to look for our next lesson where we'll be covering Chapter 21 of the Hospital Corman Manual. As always, I'm Taylor Larson, reminding you to stay Navy and always keep working for that next rank. Thank you.